0: Please.
1: Truth Seekers, and Truth Crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise, and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at G at For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership singer, Melba Moore, an iconic entertainer who has left a lasting imprint as a recording artist a Broadway performer, and in television and film. First gaining acclaim in the late 1960s in the original stage cast of the rock musical Hair, she released her first album in 1970. From 1976 through 1990, her vocal talent and style carried seven albums into the top 40 of the R&B charts, and she notched more than 20 top R&B singles, including the number one hits, A Little Bit More with Freddie Jackson and Falling. And she's not done yet, not by a long shot, Teaming up with her daughter, Charlie Huggins, she has a new album out called Imagine, where she continues to share her gifts. Melba, it's such an honor to have you on the program. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Where are you today, Melba?
0: Sherry, I'm a Jersey girl right now. West New York, New Jersey. Okay. Which is really like being in New York.
1: <laughs> yeah. I don't, do, you,
0: do you know this part of Jersey?
1: Uh, what, what town?
0: West New York, New Jersey.
1: Uh, are you across the river there, or where? Where's that about?
0: Well, across the river from where? Where are you?
1: <laughs> well, I'm in Charlotte. Oh,
0: oh, you down south.
1: That's right. <laughs> yeah, it well, works. Ninety-seven yes, I, degrees today.
0: Oh, okay. We're a little cooler up here today. Yeah, I think yeah. we're in the in the sixties or so the seventies. We got a little cooler. Yeah, I'm right. I'm right across the. Um, I'm right on the Hudson River on the Jersey side.
1: Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. I've stayed in uh, Hoboken and that yeah. area. So yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I love the uh, view of the city you get from over there.
0: It's amazing. Yeah. It's the only way to see that skyline.
1: Hmm. Well, again, thank you for doing this. I'm going to jump right in, make the most of our time. Okay. Um, I want to uh, take you back uh, quite a bit. We'll try to do a little chronological thing here okay. and, um, You know, Hair, Hair is a uh, show uh, that you got your start with. And when I was a kid, my mom had the soundtrack and I loved the music (laughs) and I kind of grew up with that a little bit. So I wanted to know, you know, what was that experience like for you and what did you take from it as you moved forward?
0: Oh, it was quite amazing because I seemed to be the right place at the right time. I wasn't uh, planning, didn't know how to plan to be an actor or on the theatrical stage. <clears throat> uh, matter of fact, I was a school teacher. <laughs> but, uh, uh, <clears throat> I was trying to get into the industry and I uh, met Valerie Simpson, who got me involved with the studio backup singing. And one of the recording sessions was for Jim Rado and Jerry Ragney and Galt McDermott, who wrote the book and the music for the Broadway musical Hair, and they were still casting. And um, only place I had seen hippies was on TV until they came into the studio. Well, Galt was very, very straight-laced. He was not a hippie. But uh, Jim and Jerry were. And I, I think Jim Reno I don't think he had any shoes on. But, and we were in New York City in a studio. <laughs> so it was really quite uh, um, exciting, I'll put it that way.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. a whole and, new world, uh, right? A whole new world.
0: A new planet, yeah. <laughs> And uh, um, they created new rules, uh, broke all the old rules as far as theater was concerned. They were the first rock musical. And of course, uh, if you were black, you did R and You didn't do rock. <laughs> so they broke all the color lines. <laughs> they broke. They broke all the gender lines. A black woman played Abraham Lincoln in a parody doing the uh, the Gettysburg Address. So it was. It was a. It was a wonderful experiment in theater, in humanity, in the arts, in Broadway, and in my life.
1: (laughs) Yeah, wow. Uh, It was groundbreaking for sure. And what you did with it was groundbreaking. So um, your uh, debut came out in 1970 on the recording side of things. Um, What... uh, you know, how did you feel about your first record when you finally got in a studio and you made a record, and you know, how did you feel about how it was received, and what was your mindset at that point?
0: Well, it's all been a process for me. I, I'm not sure I can tell you how I first felt about the first record. It's been such a process, and it's, it's been such a gradual process. Um, I started as, as a um, vocal music teacher in the public schools, and then kind of um, went into studio work, and then uh, got into Broadway, and wound up doing the um, the uh, the lead in the Broadway show Hair, and becoming the first black woman to replace a white lady in a lead role on Broadway. So these these were groundbreaking things to me too, all along with trying to become an artist. So it's kind of hard for me to just isolate and say, how did I feel about that one little, th- not one little, I'm getting ready to say little thing. It's not little. <laughs> mm-hmm. But so you ask a question that um, I don't know if I could really answer it, how I felt first, but there's so many things to go back and try to remember.
1: Fair now, enough. <laughs> you know. let, let me ask you this. Um, you know, you got eventually on Buddha records and yeah. uh, fans of the show. They definitely said, you know, when the new year coming on, they they want to know some ab- about your your period at records, the sure. records and uh, peach Melba was, you know, very, uh, hotly received record. Yes. And actually, um, before that, I know actually on that, yeah, that record, peach Melba, great, great album. I mean, tracks like must be dues, uh, really, you know, great, uh, straight up R and B and what a great band you had.
0: Well, it was Gene McDaniels. He was the songwriter producer and, I guess the executive producer of of that album. So he spearheaded it and he was helping me to try to find my place in recorded music, try to find out what, what my style was and where could I fit. And um, of course I remember Peach Melba album very, very well because I was in love with my then husband. Things were going really nicely then. (laughs) And of course he was helping me to find a management team to spearhead my career in my life, so I remember that very, very well. And um, the 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 music that we recorded was recorded at Gene uh, McDaniel's home on the West Coast. Uh, he lived like on the Pacific Coast Highway, not on the highway, but <laughs> really near the near the Pacific Ocean, and in the mountains. And so it was very kind of like heavenly. It felt like. It felt like you were new, like you were experiencing life afresh and new in a different way. And I, f- I feel like the album still sounds like that.
1: Yeah, well, that's, I'm from Los Angeles originally, so I know that area very well. I uh, grew up in Santa Monica, so not too and far Oh, I love from Santa from, Monica. Yeah. You know,
0: I saw a UFO there?
1: No way.
0: Yeah, Yeah, down on the Santa Monica beach. Not on the beach, in the sky. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But I don't know. You know, maybe artistic people are, are given to heavenly thoughts and imaginings and things like that, and that's that's kind of how we are. So it's we feel um, in a way that we're not better. I don't mean in that way, but in a higher place somehow, spiritually. We're always looking at things in kind of an artistic and spiritual way, and the, the, that part of Los Angeles to me is mm-hmm. is very um, kind of magical. Yeah, to ride up that coastline all the way up there. I can't remember the, I haven't been out there in so long. Some of the areas that are up there, uh, but to drive up that, oh, up north, what's going up toward, I guess, Seattle and you know Washington. Or, um, if you were going to go as far north in America as you could, go up the Pacific Highway. It's quite an amazing trip. And to record your music out there and you have your first like roll R&B uh, um recording up there. it's just part of a uplifting incredible feeling that lets me know I have an incredible life and that's been part of it you, you know and um trying to find my voice, <laughs> having all these incredible songwriters and producers and and now I'm famous. oh my goodness uh, starting to do television and uh, had those experiences. And now to have you ask me to, to remember it, I, c- I can say it was great and everything, but it was really kind of magical.
1: Yeah. Who were who a couple of your favorite singers uh, back then that you really looked up to or influenced you?
0: Oh, of course, Aretha Franklin. And my little voice could never sound like hers because <laughs> I wanted a big voice and I wanted to sing gospel like every great black singer. <laughs> But we had other great singers, too. Um, didn't we have people like Peggy Lee? Didn't we have people like Dinah Shore? Didn't we? We, we had, um, I'm not going to be able to remember them all because it's just too far back for me to remember all of those. But we had, we're America. We are multicultural. That's what strikes me. I'm a black person, of course, and I'm, I'm going to want to sing uh, um, disco and, <laughs> and uh, R&B music. But we also had Frank Sinatra. We had, I can't think of, you know, some of the, uh, we had uh, Harry Belafonte. We had his daughter, Sherry Belafonte. Mm-hmm. I can't remember them all because my parents were musicians. So I know people like Sarah Vaughn and Ella Fitzgerald. And I'm, I'm mentioning some, some of those because, you know, you're never going to forget those, but there are so many. Yeah. So many, and, and some of them maybe only had one hit. And you know they may be considered fly by nighters, but they so. When I think about the culture, we have so much fun music, good music, diverse music, and then you also have, if you want it, classical music. And uh, being classically trained, um, I was familiar with whoever was popular in, in uh, um, opera at the time. I can't remember don't know who the people are now because my focus has been on something else for so long and I'm quite a bit older now.
1: <laughs> so yeah. a long
0: time ago, but I do want to say that we still have so much diversity because we're American. It's the way we are here.
1: Absolutely. Uh, and it was just a year later about when you hit it, you know, you finally got your hit song with this is it. And not to be confused with the Kenny Loggins song that came later, but uh how did it feel to, to finally get over with a hit for yourself?
0: Oh, that was just fun, you know, to turn on the radio and hear your music. And it's a dance song, so it's joyful. And, you know, you can dance in the car. <laughs> and, you know, and you're young, you're, you know, you um got the energy and the, um, the, the right frame of mind to just enjoy the whole aspect of it. You know, and scream and yell, because it's your record. <laughs> And just really, really, really enjoy it. Yeah.
1: Do you have any memories of Van McCoy?
0: Oh, just as, yeah, because he was a consummate musician. Um, I know he hated saxophones. I know that. He liked oboes. (laughs) And uh, when I asked him to please do kind of my routine of Lean on Me uh, and reminded him that he had written it for... uh, Either Vivian Reed or Aretha Franklin, but that I I had a a version that I wanted to sing uh, um, because it could help me develop uh, or express my style that was starting to come. And he agreed to it. I knew he was a really nice person. He was not an egotistical person. He was not a selfish person. And he's an incredible musician. And of course, for those who don't know, he ushered in the new dance era of America called Disco with The Hustle. And actually, I think he did it from Germany. I don't even think it was released here first. Hmm. So he was probably among the first Americans to have dance music global and maybe lay the groundwork for what we have now is such a variety of, of all kinds of dance music all over the world, and especially in the UK.
1: Uh, and you mentioned "leaning On Me. Man, what a great gospel-y type performance that is, and, uh, you know, how many takes did it take for you to hit that one extended note?
0: The note is easy <laughs> because that's what I do. And I was trying to find a song constructed so I could do that. So it didn't take me any any times to do that. I don't remember how many times it might have taken me to do other aspects that, you know, to the listener sound very, very simple and easy, but maybe you didn't capture the expression or the, um, you know, the emotion that you wanted to in the first or second take. So you do several takes until you you get it right. But the the big high long notes, those are easy. Well, I mean, for me.
1: Yeah, right. (laughs) Easy for you. (laughs) But, you know, that's one of the distinctive characteristics of your vocals, you know, or being able to hold those kind of notes and also the octave range, I would say.
0: Right. Right. Yeah.
1: Um so at that point you know when you became famous as a recording artist in the 70s uh were you out doing a lot of uh you know tours at that point you know and uh, I know you were making tv appearances but uh, did you go out with some of the other top acts of of the day and, and perform concert tours
0: I did with uh, other concert artists uh I was also because of the Tony award and my success coming from theater Able to work the best supper clubs, like the Palmer House in Chicago and the Waldorf in New York City, Uh, the supper clubs. Ah! I mean, they're so fancy. There were all kinds of venues to be worked. We had big outdoor concerts and festivals as well, and there there were the the jazz festivals. I mean, there's they still are, and uh, then there there were places like Blues Alley, small clubs. So uh, uh, that's what I love about America. We have such a diversity of types of venues. And then there are like um, s- um, certain places, well, different places have different audiences. <laughs> so that's what I think allowed me to, to um, develop diversity. Different Audiences want to hear different things. So you create different shows for each audience.
1: Did you, uh, and do you still, but, uh, How do you um, feel about performing on stage versus in a studio? You know, what gives you the most joy?
0: Oh, I don't compare them like that because studio uh, performance is absolutely, totally different. First of all, if you're recording, it's very, 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 very technical. So you have to pay attention in a different way. When I say technical, it doesn't matter what you look like. (laughs) You Mm -hmm. You can come in rags. It's okay. No makeup, you know.
1: No, barefoot, like you said earlier.
0: (laughs) Right, you could. You don't even (laughs) have to wear shoes. (laughs) But uh, um, even if you're just recording visually, somebody's going to see it, so that's already different. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, if you're going to perform it in front, like for instance, I, I I would. I mean, you don't want people in the studio when you're recording because they're going to hear your mistakes. (laughs) So you don't have, to, well, I don't have people in the studio when I'm, when I'm working because I want to be able to focus, think about that, because I'm going to be distracted. I'm, I'm going to be concerned about not pleasing whoever is there. I'm, I'm going to turn into, they're going to be my audience. You know, they, don't, they may not want to do that or mean that. They just want to be there. But you can't think like that. <laughs> you have to think about who's there. They're the other part of your life and your work. So... Um, <clears throat> Um, I mean, I love studio recording because then you can just totally let your mind go to the music part of it. And I love the music part of it. I absolutely adore that. I could, you know, just spend hours and hours and hours and hours and hours going over and da 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 Because one of the things I noticed, I'm kind of a slow study. And so, like, the more I sing something, actually, the stronger and the better it gets. It's like going to the gym. So I don't mind that at all. I just have to make sure that I'm working with somebody who doesn't think I I have to do it in one take, or, you know, um, they're tired of being in the studio. Uh, They have to be patient and, you know, kind of take it slowly with me because I seem to be kind of a slow study. But I I love studio work, but uh, it's totally, totally, totally different than performing from somebody in um, a live concert. Because all of a sudden, first of all, I had to get everything ready physically for myself, not just the way you look, But everything in tune, like you were going to ride a bike and make sure there's air in the tire, you know, make sure the brakes work, you know, or if it's a car, everything that works before you get there. You can't warm up on them. At least I don't. My eyeballs are getting big already. right? (laughs) Because I'm so impressionable. I'm so affected by other people. And I'm glad of that. Um, It's not always very comfortable, especially if things are not going the way you want them to go and you have to fix it and make sure that it's going to be all right. But it makes you. I think focus and and rehearse and prepare yourself before you get there so that you can enjoy it. I'm I'm not going to enjoy it if if I could have warmed up or I could have done something to prepare. And when I get there, I'm not going to be able to do a good show because I didn't prepare right. I'm I'm not going to enjoy it at all. And maybe everybody else thought it was great. But if I know there's something I could have done better, I I won't enjoy it. (laughs) So I don't know. I, I think... In a, in a way, the same thing is true of recording. You know, you make sure you know the song, all the different aspects of it. If we have to break it down and take it in sections, you make sure that you're in good vocal health and that you have the right things to eat and to drink to keep sustaining yourself because you you, you got to take like maybe one part of a muscle and use it over and over and over and over and over and over. And over. You, it can't wear it out. It has, it has to get stronger from you doing that. So... That's a little bit of an insight into how I look at things. I can't say, okay, I like this better than, no, I can't choose. like It's like your children. You can't choose between them.
1: (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah, no, I can appreciate that. I do think though, that starting out on the stage for, you know, like hair and things like that must've made it an easier transition to perform your music on stage as opposed to people that haven't had that background before getting into recording.
0: Absolutely. Because, um, I think, I'm sure what happened, why am I having the opportunity to get on the stage uh, in the stage play of Hair? I had the wonderful director, Tom O'Horgan, telling me, you know, which is stage left, which is stage right, which is downstage, you know, um, how not to upstage someone else if you're on with an ensemble, um, how to project where to go to do certain aspects of what you, you, you're you doing so that you realize the story that your body is telling. That normally, if you're just thinking about the singing, you don't know what your body is saying. You don't know how to engage it for the song. I'm much, 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 much more aware, not just only of standing up tall and everything, but if the song um, is a sad song or whatever to, to express that not to just separate and just do it musically. Uh, um, to tell the story with the body as well as the song. That has come from having good directors, uh, like um, um, my director in uh, Pearly, Philip Rose. And I remember him uh, reminding me um, <clears throat> to stay in character because the, she was a Southern character. And because I'm from New York City, right? <laughs> and if you haven't, gotten used to have been trained to stay in the character or the person that you're in, and you're just up there and you're just talented, but you don't have any discipline or no experience, you'll slip back into yourself um, or you, you can. And so to, to remember, oh, no, that's not who I am right now. That's not who I am right now. I keep doing it, come back, come back and, and work on the stage with seasoned actors who maybe are, they're not singers, they're actors. So they, um, they approach it slightly differently and you learn from them. Oh, this is how, this is how you think about that. And then when you're with them, you, you, you're with them you know, in the dialogue as that person playing opposite them. And so you see how it is like, I'm talking to you now, but you see how it is on the stage. It's very different. And then you, know, you have to remember you still have that responsibility when you're on the stage singing a song and you you don't have a dialogue, you don't have a director, nobody's telling you to do anything, you can do anything you want to, then you gotta, you have to remind yourself to be disciplined. Stand up nicely. People are looking at you. You, you have to focus that yourself. <laughs> but you wouldn't have that to tell yourself if, if you didn't have people teach you that. And sometimes, you know, you're you having such a good time, you forget, you know, people taught you this. Remember that. <laughs> you know, and, and go back to it and then pass it on to somebody else.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, Melba, you, uh, you left booty, you went to Epic and you had another hit with uh, you stepped into my life and uh, working with McFadden and Whitehead and and those guys. Mm -hmm. Uh, What was uh, that like? Is there anything you can share with viewers about that experience?
0: Well, my then husband was responsible for that. His name is Charles Huggins. I got to say thank you to him, not only for loving me and taking care of me, but uh, really um, becoming my personal manager and spearheading the business aspect of uh, my life because I didn't have any background in the business aspect of it. And somebody has to make the deals. You even have to have some kind of uh, wisdom to pick and find a manager. That was the first challenge we had to try to do to try to find a manager. We weren't able to find one because uh, most of the managers that would have been great for us for recording had never managed anybody who had done theater. And they thought, well, if you were Broadway, you're not going to really fit in um, R&B recorded music because nobody really had done it before. And uh, uh, I would say that um, the – the way that we went was was marvelous because uh, what my then husband did was ask people around, you know, well, how do you do this? How do you do that? He got a lot of good counsel. He went to, um, for instance, he went to many, but he went to Philly International uh, with Gamble and Huff and had lots of meetings with them until eventually he kind of yeah. borrowed Gene McFadden and John Whitehead <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, spent a lot of time with them and seeing what they felt was a good direction to try to uh, st- start to take me in for music. And they wrote and produced many, many wonderful songs for me. Like, I don't know who no else to turn to a beautiful ballad. I'm um, standing right here. Wonderful uh, dance classic has become for me. Um, they took the Bee Gees song, You Stepped Into My Life and did such an incredible arrangement. It's still a hit, You Stepped Into My Life. Uh, but it's, it's that Philly International funk and feel with that uh, B.G.'s genius um, construction of the song. And then they tailor made it for my little voice <laughs> so I could fit into disco. <laughs> so and they've uh, created cr- quality music. Um, they cr- created music that has lasted and music that I can still build on. So it, it, they've given me a life in this industry. McFadden and Whitehead, well, they've been part of, you know, helping me to build a life in this industry.
1: Was there any point where you felt like you were being pushed maybe out of your comfort zone and you had to kind of like challenge yourself?
0: I was never in a comfort zone. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because regardless of what I was trying, it was always new. And um, I would would have to go and do a song or do a recording. We have to test it on people if whether or not they were going to buy it. And then could I perform it live? Because like in the studio, you can get a chance to take one section of it over and over and over and over. When it's live, you have to put it all together and be able to strengthen all the different areas of your voice so that you can do that. Plus you walk into somebody's air conditioning or whatever it is, you don't, it's like, okay, now go perform on the moon. Let me see you do that. <laughs> to find out if it's going to stand up or not. So when when I tell you that I'm excited about looking back on it to see what we have. I mean, that's the only way I think you can really assess that you've got something good after it's all over. It's too late if it's not, you know? So there's never like really a comfort zone. And by the time you get comfortable with that, for most of us in the recording industry, it's time for you to try to put something else out and find out what that's gonna do and test it again.
1: Well, your own personal preference, did you prefer doing more down-tempo material or did you like the dance material?
0: I think I do ballads better. But you can't have a whole evening of ballads. <laughs> uh, you can't have a whole recording of ballads. You have to have diversity. You have to have variety. And then at a certain point, if you have um, a lot of songs that are successful, you, you're going to have to break them up either with other people's music or with um, other songs of yours. And if you have a a career like Frank Sinatra, you can do one song, it's okay. (laughs) But if your career hasn't been that successful, you're gonna have to try to get some success with some diversity in music so that when you do your show, it can be diverse enough to keep people's interest. It has to vary so. Unless, I mean, there's some people who can, there are some people who can just sing one type of music and their audience is is happy and nobody's bored. But I find that I need to have a little little bit of diversity.
1: There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkenslift.net. Thank you very much.